of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome John Webster, who is Professor Emeritus at the University of Bristol in the UK. Welcome, John. Hello, Sabrina. Hello, everybody. Yes, delighted to have you on the podcast today. And of course, many of our listeners will know you from your extensive career and writing in animal welfare science and beyond, you know, your books and articles. But for those who don't, could you do a short introduction to yourself, please? Well, I, I am a, a vet, a veterinary surgeon. Um, originally wanted to be quite a simple cow vet. I was sort of almost raised by a foster father who drove around the farms looking after cows all day. And that was the beginning and end of my ambition for a long while. But then in latter days at university, I thought I got a bit academic. So did a lot of veterinary research, not in those days on animal welfare, animal physiology, mostly nutrition and health, a lot of work on lameness, pneumonia and things. Um, I got into welfare and then um, in 1978, I, I was appointed at the uh, head of the uh, animal husbandry department at the Bristol veterinary school in UK and at that time that was the beginning of the animal welfare movement and at that time I was having a rage against veal calf production which uh, was being accused at that time of being unfair cruel to calves by locking them up in crates when I looked at it I said well yeah that is a problem it's denying them natural behavior but everything is wrong the feeding is terrible their health is terrible their comfort is terrible they're stressed out of their minds I said there was so much more to welfare than just behavioural restriction. And that brought me, I put forward firstly the idea of the five freedoms, which was a comprehensive description of the things that mattered in terms of animal welfare. That was taken up by the, the United Kingdom Farm Animal Welfare Council. Um, I started an animal welfare and behaviour group at the University of Bristol, and it's gone from there, really. Wonderful. It, I'm so looking forward to also the historics of, you know, it's often looking back also where we came from and what have we learned and also what do we already know that we're not necessarily using and, and I very much appreciate all the applied work that you've done. Can you talk a little bit about how you came, why did you decide to study veterinary science and, and then, you know, perhaps move into more of the, the animal welfare science aspects? Well, I, I studied veterinary science, I say, because I, I loved the country life. I, as I say, was almost adopted by a veterinarian. And I, at those days, I just wanted to be a country vet, a sort of James Herriot type. Uh, the university uh, persuaded me to become a bit more academic. And as I say, I didn't really get into welfare until I came down to Bristol. Um, I was always, <clears throat> I was always, always studying animal science and agriculture from the animal's point of view. You know, my 
aim was always to help the animal, make it better for the animal than for the farmer necessarily. So that I, I naturally moved towards welfare. I came down to Bristol at a time where um, the welfare movement was just taking off. So I jumped on that bandwagon very early on and it worked remarkably well. Yes, wonderful. I like those those detailed points and understanding more about people's <coughs> motivations and uh, and like you say, animals' point of view. And uh, in quite a number of your presentations and writing, um, you really highlight you know the importance of animal welfare science for veterinarians. Can you elaborate a little on that? Yes. Um... <sighs> There was, there was, um, this goes back to my days at university. Um, I, I had, I was concerned about the animals. I was concerned about the callous, callousness of some veterinary, veterinary practice. And I, I remember writing across the file I carried all my lecture notes around in was the prime function of the veterinarian is to wrest the sickle from the grisly hand of death and throw it into the butcher's bloody fist. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's that's just about the, the way it is. So I I, I wanted, I, I always wanted to be nice, uh, kind to animals in a constructive, unsentimental, and generally useful sort of way. Yes, and when you say uh, unsentimental, uh, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> because um, sentiment, sentiment is an expression of seeing animals through our own eyes um, as, as sort of lovable as pets or as food animals or whatever. Uh, my unsentimental view of animals is to, and it's an anthropomorphic thing as sentiment. My view of animals is based on a sort of reverse anthropomorphism when I don't try and think, how would that cow feel if it were me? I try and think, how would I feel if I were that cow? Uh, and uh, it, that that is a very rational, and it, so, it sounds it sounds unscientific, but it isn't actually. Uh, this it is the basis of um, motivation analysis. Uh, some motivation analysis, which is a major tool in animal welfare, is that the scientist thinks if I were a chicken, and I was faced by this problem, what might I do? What options might I take? and how hard would I work to achieve my goals? So you then set up an experiment and ask the chicken and, and um, you, you, you uh, interpret it, the problem, the way the chicken would interpret it. Now that is reverse anthropomorphism and it's remarkably unsentimental. Yes, wonderful, thank you. Because absolutely you talk about kindness to animals and looking from an animal's point of view. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, um, non-sentimental or unsentimental doesn't necessarily mean without you know feelings in that sense um, it's so it, it, it involves a lot of caring yes absolutely but but, but um it is uh yeah it it's it, 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 it's cool caring if you understand what i mean yes it, yes it, it's, I, I, yeah. I i don't i don't sort of rush around and flap i i i adopt i i put my mind to address their feelings Yes, absolutely. And I really appreciate, you know, all these positions that you're making. So you you talk about, you know, animals, you know, their feelings or like as sentient beings. And um, one of the the papers or the, the work that you've been writing around a lot is about the sentient animals not only living 
in the present. And so when you talk about either using motivational analysis or other ways of getting glimpses or insights in what animals might be experiencing uh, that is now, but also in other uh, moments. Can you elaborate a little bit on sentient animals do not live yeah. only in the present? Yep, yep, I shall. A, a quick plug there. At the moment, I'm working on having and got accepted a new book called Animal Welfare, Understanding the Sentient Mind. So I'm going into this in a big way these days. And I'm using a, a Buddhist approach, which has five skanda or degrees of sentience, uh, which is the first, first. And early on, you get sensation, which is a sort of hardwired response. But nearly all the animals we deal with have higher powers of sentience, at, at the very least perception. All the animals we deal with that come into our contact, right down to fish and even lower, lower, even further down that scale, um, do not just respond in a hard, hard wired way. They're able to recognize the nature of the stimulus, the nature of the response, uh, and did it work or didn't it work? If not, they'll try again. So the animal is not much living in the presence. It, it learns from experience. If it learns that it can cope with the challenges of life, it will adapt and life will, it will get easier next time. If it discovers that it cannot cope because either the stresses are too severe, too prolonged, or it is an environment where it's so restrained it can't do what it needs to cope, then that animal will progressively deteriorate and will suffer. So really the difference between coping uh, welfare depends upon whether you can or cannot cope with the challenges of life. But in that particular case, um, for all the animals we deal with, they don't simply react in a hardwired way. They, have it, they learn from experience, which means that at best, it means they learn how to adapt. At worst, it means if they learn they can't adapt, the suffering gets worse and worse. Well, we'll definitely look forward to your new book. Can you talk a little bit more about the five degrees of sentience from Buddhism that you... <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I'm a great fan of this at the moment. Uh, people have said, You're, I, are you getting sort of weird and religious? I'm not. Um, I ha it, these, I, these just happen to be in, in the Buddhist, Buddhist philosophy. But they, to me, are the most practical and scientific ways of describing sentience. Because a lot of people say sentience is just having feelings. Well, that's no good at all. I define it as having feelings that matter uh, and you know how hard they work is depends of how, how much they matter but the Buddhists have got it the, well that they they talk about to quote Al Schweitzer that you know we should have a reference for all life uh, but the how that affects our behavior uh, depends upon the nature of their sentience. So all living forms, the Buddhists say, have sentience, but that includes plants, you know, which actually sort of react to light and move around with it. But I'm not saying, I, I don't, not terribly concerned about the welfare of a dandelion. But next above that, you get sensation. Now this is this sort of totally hardwired response where, you know, if, if you, and I have to be very careful with this, if you sort of, um, Put, put, stick toward, you know, a pin towards a worm, it will move away. Uh, but whether it will learn from experience is another matter. But nearly all the other animals, so that's the first one, there's matter, sensation, perception, which as I say, all the animals we deal with have this ability of perception, which means they don't just live in the present. Next, 
closer into the inner circle of sentience, we get mental formulation. That is the ability to make mental images and gather a picture of the world, which has benefits for social structures. It also um, improves their ability to learn by experience and learn by giving and receiving education. The Buddhists reserve the term consciousness and I agree with them, it, it reserved the con term consciousness for the sort of higher consciousness that we, the higher definition of consciousness that we have in humans, like best defined as being aware that we are aware. This, I'm getting into jargon now for the behaviorists, this includes the property of theory of mind, the sense of self and non-self, and this gives the rise for, that provides the opportunity for good things like empathy and compassion, but also for bad things like deceit and greed and things of this nature. So these are the five layers. But for welfare points of view, I, I don't use the word consciousness at all. From welfare, any animal with the power of perception, but what we'll rephrase that. In the United Kingdom law, scientific procedures law, um, we consider that any animal, um, act that causes harm to any animal, it, it should be subject to extreme restriction. And that means, in their purposes, all the vertebrates and some invertebrates like um, cephalopods, squid and the like. They probably should, we should include lobsters and things as well. But so we should avoid actually doing, we should minimize the, the harm we do to such animals. But any other animals with a higher degrees of perception, and that's really just about all the animals with whom we interact, we have a, um, a need to respect not just not doing harm, but we have a need to respect their minds because any animal with a power of perception is using its mind. And that is something we must recognize. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that is wonderful. It's really, yeah, I think it's so important to really look at. And I think yes. it's, um, I always try to approach it with kind of a an open heart when people yeah. say, well, that is a bit weird, or why are you even looking at those things? And I think it's it's almost seen as a compliment. Uh, we're, 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 looking at, we're looking at the minds of animals because they're there. It's like climbing Everest, they're there. So we, we, have, a, we have a duty to look into animal minds. Absolutely, yes. And for that, we can explore all kinds of disciplines, all kinds of philosophies and ways of approaching and then see in what ways can that help us you know, yep. formulate our thoughts as well as research and, and how does that, you know, help in policy and other ways of us um, caring for animals, respecting animals, protecting animals and promoting, of course, positive um, welfare for animals. Oh, yes. Yes. So I really, I already look forward to reading this book. And so you talked very briefly, of course, about the calves and, you know, raging and callousness and, you talk about you know our duties towards animals so can you talk uh, and you you mentioned also law so can you talk a little bit about values and and also <clears throat> one of your sentences that i that i lifted from some of the reading was the you know to act according to what is right and not simply to what is regulated well yes um the law well, morality isn't a fixed um, target. Uh, mor we, we, morality evolves, and the sense of right and wrong evolves, and our attitudes, the attitudes of society to animals are 
have developed enormously in the last 50 years, for example. And they, they have been driven by people who do that, who sense, who wish to go beyond the law to do better than the law and develop, develop standards of what we perceive is right that are better than the law. And in the animal welfare field, a classic pioneer, and that was Ruth Harrison, a lady I knew very well and uh, greatly respected. She started with her book, Animal Machines, and um, you know made the point that the law says, uh, for example, that um, it is cruel and illegal to, to cage a bird um, in such a with such confinement that it is unable to flap its wings and fly. And then it, it's in, in a subset of the law that says this does not apply to birds raised for food, which meant we, we'd written a law that didn't apply to about 99% of the animals under our control, which is a complete farce. So what happens is that people who, who have ideas that are better than the law start to shift public opinion uh, and they, they build up a pressure for change uh, and often reinforced by um, people changing their buying habits in the supermarkets and the like. And eventually the law catches up. So the law is limping along behind public opinion all the time. It reminds me, thank you so much for sharing this. And I think it reminds me very much about uh, work from um, a lawyer in the United States who wrote a book, Excellence Beyond Compliance, which is for well, this. Well, that, 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 exactly that. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. 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 Um, so James Giswaldi, and he has been very active for decades in the zoo and aquarium community. Right. And I often, you know, look at his work and we talk uh, regularly and uh, it's exactly that. It's like, how do you make, you know, really changes and, and how do you keep moving forward uh, as you know laws may catch up or may not? Or how do we, you know, work around some of the laws that uh, perhaps you know inhibit or stop us from doing things that we would want to do for animals, which sometimes happens as well, of course. Right now, this I interrupt here. This is where the animal welfare scientist comes in because the animal welfare scientist is studying the minds of animals and the actions of animals and the responses of animals. It is our duty, first of all, I, I consider it my duty to help keep pushing changes in the law, but it is our duty to make sure that the decisions we make are correct. Because what we may think is right for an animal is not necessarily, we animal may not necessarily see it the same way. I mean, one example of that is that a lot, quite a lot of the, um, free-range chicken units actually can create quite a lot of problems, including psychological distress from um, cannibalism and things of this nature. Whereas some of the enriched cages, um, I'm not saying they're ideal, but the hens seem to quite like them. So <laughs> in this case, it's up and people like Christine Nicholas demonstrated that. So it is really up to the scientists to make sure that um, what we perceive to be the right decision is is the same as the chicken or the cow would, would it, we, that they would see it the same way. Yes, absolutely. It just reminds me of some of the free range chicken 
uh, farms around here where, you know, the animals have outside access and um, a lot of them are, you know, on the perimeters because the whole field is completely empty and we have quite a lot of birds of prey here and yep, yep. others. And so if there would be an orchard or some sort of cover, uh, which some of the farms here have too, then you can really see that the behavior of these chickens is very different because they actually, you know, they have cover and they have ways of feeling safe while the other farms, you yeah, know, the chickens yeah. distributed. This, yeah. of course, reflects um, an understanding of hen behavior because yes. the hen, which just which only can flap around a little, can't fly very much, yeah. is a jungle fowl. And in the daytime, it, it stays on the ground under cover from the air to get protection from the air. At night, it, 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 it flies up into a perch or a branch to get protection from the animals that hunt on the ground by night. So this is entirely normal, um, uh, built-in, genetically built-in behavior of the jungle fowl. And, and any outdoor unit uh, that fails to recognize this is, is doing them harm. Now, I've, I've been to some fairly bad ones. I've been to some very good ones. We did a very big study with uh, Claire Weeks and, and, and um, uh, Becky Way of the uh, behavior and welfare of her hens and outdoor units. And, and some of the best ones where they did have, they planted low, low level shrubs to get ground cover. Um, in, in the barren ones, you just see, you just, you see a little patch of bare ground just outside the hen houses and uh, the grass is, is just going rank around the edges. In these, where they had bare cover, or, uh, um, cover from the air all over, um, it looked as though that a, a lawnmower had been through or sheep had been through because the sheep had grazed every speck of grass. So they were clearly foraging the entire um, outdoor territory. Now that was brilliant. That was, and, and the hens looked terrific. And you could always tell that nearly all of them went out of doors because you can recognize a hen that goes out for doors from one that doesn't because they have big red sort of turgid combs and wattles. The ones that stay in all day, they have sort of limp flaccid combs and wattles. So you can actually, you can actually do a diagnosis of how many hens go out of doors in any particular free range unit. Yes. Oh, wonderful. I love all those details. Yes. I remember working in Cambodia and seeing all the chickens go up in the trees in the evening yeah, and, you yeah. know, they were there and yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love all this. So you talked um, about, you know, uh, values and uh, ethics. Can you talk a little bit more around this topic of ethics and, and politics of animal welfare? <laughs> well, that is a big subject. Um, We, we, the very fact we recognize that animals are sentient uh, and have sentient minds means that we have a duty of responsibility to them. Um, now that will change according to whether um, these animals are directly in our care uh, or they're not. Um, if they're not, if they are what we would define as wild, because concept of wild animals is a human definition and animals know, doesn't know whether it's wild or, or or a pet or game or vermin or whatever, you know, an animal is just an animal. But if they are animals not under our control in a natural habitat, our most honorable duty is to leave them well alone. And I mean both well and alone. And that means we, we should keep out of their way as far as possible. And we should ensure that their habitat is sufficient to meet their needs. So that, that lest we mess around with animals not directly under our control, um, the better. For those that are, 
we have to recognize, and this is the old Cordelia problem, that a rat is a rat is a rat, whether she's a vermin living in a, in a sewer or a, my daughter's pet. Um, it's still a rat and her sentience is defined by her, her welfare is defined by her own sentience. So that's something we have to recognize all the time. But whenever we get an animal into our care, we're inevitably going to disturb its life. And at probably some stage, we're going to do it some harm. Obviously, in the, with food animals, ultimately, you are going to do, do them a, a lot of harm. Uh, well, we're going to kill them. Uh, and the uh, animals for scientific procedures, uh, we do harm uh, in a very, very controlled fashion. So we have to recognize that we, we have to recognize that we are going to do them. We're going to interfere with their lives and we're going to do them harm. So the, um, the, uh, our moral duty is to minimize, or if possible, avoid altogether any distress uh, that um, comes from um, our actions. Bearing that in mind, of course, actually being dead is not a welfare problem. Uh, the process of dying it can be, but can be. But most animals humanely slaughtered will have a much easier death than I shall. Yes, so you mentioned the Cordelia and, uh, you know, obviously that is something that I think, you know, we talk about also quite a lot in, in zoos and aquariums where, and yeah. where animals have different kind of roles, if you like. They get attributed roles by us, whether you maybe they're an ambassador animal and some animals are, you know, on display and other animals are uh, breeder animals. They are, you know, breeding for food for other animals. Yeah. So, you know, and really kind of being aware of the roles that we give these animals. Um, and it might be like, and I often use the rats as an example, because rats can be breeder animals and food for others. Uh, but some uh, zoos and other facilities, they might have fantastic rat uh, um, exhibits where, you know, we talk about rats and, you know, their social life and cognition and how wonderful, you know, rats can be. And so you might have within the same zoo, um, similar, you know, rats, but having very different lives. Just well, the, 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 But the Cordelia argument is the rat is a rat is a rat. And their potential, their potential to experience pleasure and suffering is the same whatever we we see as our role that uh, their their um their minds will be altered by their experience you know if, if they are living in the wild and sewers or whatever they're going to be very careful very cautious very timid uh, probably very aggressive um particularly in respect to humans because we are a threat but a, a rat that becomes a pet rat it becomes an absolute sweetie there is there is um uh, quite as interesting and considerably less neurotic than dogs, for example. Yes, absolutely. And and being aware in, indeed of, you know, what is then, you know, what are the experiences that animals have by, you know, through the roles that we give them. Um, yeah, I really, I like this, uh, you know, looking at that in detail. Just, so what does it mean for animals? Like a rat is a rat is a rat. So, yeah. And, um, so you have written uh, quite a few books 
And already earlier, you mentioned you mentioned the word limping, and one of uh, your books is uh, a cool uh, eye towards Eden, and the other one is animal welfare limping towards Eden. That's right, and the, yes. and the new one will be understanding sentient minds. It's in series, really. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, right. could you talk a little bit uh, what 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 were you know what was in the book, or what were some of the core aspects in your book, Animal Welfare: a Cool Eye Towards Eden? Well, um, the cool eye really was uh, a really extended um, exposition of the concept of the five freedoms and what they mean. You know, it starts with, you know, hunger and thirst, housing, and habitat, etc. And then, um, well, it, it was divided into two parts. The first part was how is it for them, which was an exposition of the five freedoms. The second part is what can we do for them? So I was looking at uh, the second part really deals with our actions with regard to the farm animals, um, wild animals, uh, animals and science. And and uh, and then I ended up with a bit of a sort of uh, philosophy, um, which is sorry, hang on, treading on myself. Uh, I ended up with a bit of philosophy, but it, it, it was. Um, uh, well, that was it, really. It was, how is it for them, uh, and what should we do about it? Limping it is really an extension of the... It was. I was asked to um, uh, sort of expand on the book, because the first one sold very well. So I really looked in more detail into the nature of sentience and um, the nature of stress and adaptation. So I really... Um, it was a continuation of the same thing the, um, because there was more to say and it reflected new science and new opinions. This next one is really quite different altogether um, because it looks right through the, taking the Buddhist concepts of sentience, looks right through the animal kingdom and it's looking into the, it's not, it has much less to do about with us, this one, and it's much more going into much more depth to the nature of animal minds and seeing the extent to which um, higher elements of sentience pervade the animal kingdom. Um, I mean, we see evidence of empathy and social behavior in an incredible powers of mind in the corvid birds, the crows, the rooks, the ravens and things, who, who in, in terms of both um, mental capacity and in some cases in terms of social interactions and empathy, are every bit as advanced as the great apes. And the big theme behind the new one, which is different from the old, is that we have to get round this idea that we humans are the summit of evolution, that evolution all the time has been striving to get more and more, more and more human. Uh, that is absolute rubbish. I mean, we, we humans are quite good at being humans, but we're lousy at a lot of other things. Most animals have evolved in a way that they're very good at the things that matter and really haven't bothered with the things that don't. Uh, and so um, we see social behavior in the animals that need social behavior. We see navigational skills in birds that completely bl blow out anything we could, we can't we could do without satellite receivers. I mean, how a bird can, um, how an albatross can uh, spend 18 months at, in, in the Southern Ocean, which all looks the same, then come back to exactly the same spot where it, which it left 18 months ago is mind boggling. 
Yet, of course, bizarrely, if an albatross's chick falls out of the nest, the mother doesn't know how to put it back. So, <laughs> classic example of all species have terrific, developed, fantastic skills that matter to them as a species, and it goes right throughout the animal kingdom. Um, but no one species is better than any other. Um, we, they are always very good at things that matter and pretty useless at things that don't. Yes. That's, that's, more, that's more about the new book than the old ones. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. We'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll have to hopefully have you back uh, when your new yeah, book yeah, is yeah, yeah. Well, do it, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As oh. I say, this is the one I'm thinking about at the moment. Rob. Yeah. Really, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. And it's so, uh, we often in, you know, in animal um, care facilities or study, when we study, we often use this cartoon of, um, you know, with, whether you're, when you're asking, you know, the same task of all the other animals uh, that have maybe not you know evolved or you know certain behaviors or traits or capacities then you know some animals will look dumb right uh, and it's such an important one to um, to really focus on what I, I mean we have a, another dreadful sort of anthropomorphic thing we say as humans is that oh this species is showing a brain uh, capacity of brain comparable to that to a two or three year old child that's completely meaningless comparison. They have different minds. I mean, a two or three year old child couldn't navigate its way around the world, for example. Uh, you know, it, it, it is this assumption that we are at the top of the pyramid and we should compare all other animal minds according to our own. And that is, a, that is an, such a false assumption that I, I must do everything I can to, des to destroy it. Yes, and I think, you know, I, I think it doesn't help uh, in science or in, in getting grants and funding and so on that there's such also a push to having to, you know, prove why this is relevant to us. Uh, and I think so much of research is also, you know, driven. I know from some of the grant writing I've been involved in, it was kind of, okay. Okay, so how can we make that you know, link to humans, because then the likelihood of getting funding uh, sometimes increases. And so there's obviously many reasons why things are studied and approached in a certain way. But I think, you know, funding and grants, uh, it certainly doesn't help in many, in many aspects to kind of always have to have that sort of comparison to the human animal. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a fact of life, and I don't yeah. think there's anything much I can do about that. Yeah. No, 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 of course not. <laughs> like you say, it's good that we are, you know, um, addressing, you know, this um, in, in various ways. So, and right. we do that through many uh, decades and decades of work. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I'd love to come back to your new book, um, hopefully in the next podcast. But uh, right. and I'm, I'm really, you know, uh, Ruth Harrison's book was one of the first books that I uh, read. Some of the work that we do through Animal Concepts is, you know, disseminations of reading lists and things, right. yep. uh, important books. And of course, her book uh, is so important one. And it's really uh, amazing to talk to somebody who uh, has actually known her um, because she, well, was she was a very impressive lady. I mean, I knew her very well uh, um, for years uh, and uh, Actually, she sponsored some of our earlier work with Vilkars, but or her charity did. Um, but she was a very rational lady. She 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 was not in any sense extreme, but she was um, absolutely um, determined. She was a very very powerful lady. I mean, uh, uh, completely unstoppable, uh, and also. Um, <sighs> she, she didn't. Uh, 
and she's in very, very unemotional, actually. Very, very rephrase that. She, yes, she was strong, had strong feelings, but she was very unsentimental and, and quite ruthless in her pursuits. I remember one time on the farm out of all council, we were discussing whether um, uh, so called. Um, electric not electric stunning but but so-called uh, electric current uh, indu induction of the sort of uh, analgesia during processes like dehorning and castration and things um you know were all right because what they did they paralyzed they, they had to stop the animal movement moving and the people said oh so it's right they're all right because they don't move so ruth said okay do it to me try it try it on me see what it's like. we we did but she said try it on me she said that's bloody painful so, so, so she did the experiment for herself, you know, so she was she was not a sentimentalist. She was a very hard realist and a very impressive lady. Wow, that's really, uh, yeah, impressive. Um, <laughs> um, so, like, you know, obviously your work, you know, on the Farm Animal Council around the five freedoms. And then, of mm -hmm. course, there's been this evolution and you have written also about the freedoms and then the five domains. Well, that, that, that's David Mellor's idea was the five domains. I, I was asked to compare the pros and cons of the two systems. Yes, yes. Yes. I was going to ask whether, you know, you could talk a little bit about animal welfare, like the, the five freedoms, the five domains and um, the, the life worth living, your paper around that. Yeah. It, well, that um, it, it was an invited paper. You know, I was asked to compare the two systems, and, and um, I gave a fair comparison because I, my conclusion is they have different um, objectives. The five domains looks at the sort of the four physical elements of things that may constitute welfare, like hunger, thirst, etc., uh, pain, disease, etc., and then it has this, uh, and they're sort of input factors. And then it has the fifth domain of, uh, of the overall mental state of the animal as the as the consequence of all these things put together. And, and as a way of doing welfare science, as an approach to doing welfare science, I think that is um, very useful. Um, however, uh, I believe it is less useful in the context of actually uh, improving sort of husbandry systems uh, and doing um, welfare uh, assessments on farms and in laboratories and zoos and things of this nature because um, it, we do these things primarily to uh, see what clearly is wrong um, we're good at scientific understanding it's wrong that it's likely to be perceived by the animals as a as a major problem uh, and then we address the big problems first so and the five freedoms do that because they're all the time looking at um ways in which we're interfering with both the physiological and the psychological needs of the animals and they, they can identify them in a way that they can that can be used as a template to create Create welfare control and welfare assurance problems, and they are, and they're proving very effective in practice. In practice, in dealing with establishments, animal establishments where the animals are under our control. Um, so, in in a scientific sense, um, they they don't they don't lead to new ideas in a practical sense of welfare assessment. The five freedoms work very well. The five domains is a nice idea. Um, and it does lead to some, it can lead to some new scientific thinking, such as 
but 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 it can't address something which at the moment we really can't address uh, and that is how the animal ranks um physically the importance of physiological stimuli against psychological stimuli say pain against um depression uh, inability to against freedom of choice against the ability to sort of live some sort of life and i don't really know i can't answer that um we always think pain is terribly important uh, but as christy nickel once pointed out to me um you know we we oldies like me have suffered chronic pain for a long time but we get along I'm pretty cheerful and i've had two new hips and a new knee so i've experienced a long period of um chronic pain not desperate pain but chronic pain but my mood has remained remarkably cheerful you see what i'm getting at because I, and i just don't know and i don't think even the five the five domains sort of recognizes that um but that's a really um it, it's a potentially really new um impetus for good quality welfare research and say so the relative importance of um in an animal's to an animal's quality of life of physical problems like pain against mental problems like depression depressions of mood and at the moment i haven't a clue how you'd go about it yes that that is absolutely uh complex um mm. just even thinking you know about like you you talked about hips and knees and you know depending on you know how much you know other stressors negative stressors we might have in our lives and you know how that changes and then you know depending on how you feel what your physical state is how you would rate those things and they would probably vary um so yeah it is absolutely uh, I mean, very there's common. no there's no doubt that chronic severe pain has yeah. a profound effect upon mood yeah uh, at the, the the point at which pain really um I mean, but some people are much moodier than others. I, I am, <laughs> I am fortunate. I, I'm not bragging. I'm fortunate to be an inherently cheerful person, <laughs> and, and so I, 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 I get through life, you know, um, without too much stress, I guess. And I think that's probably my genes. Um, but, uh, but other people, the slightest, the slightest stress or puts them in a state of total panic, and, and, and or anxiety or whatever, and. We see that in humans, obviously. We're seeing it, it, it and it, it is partly environmental. It's it, it, it probably main, mainly environmental, but it has a genetic component. So there are there um, there is a good there there is a great potential for new good quality science, animal welfare science, looking at the factors that cause individual differences within a species in the 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 impact of various life challenges on mood and uh that would be some very clever experiments which i'd have which I, I shall have to think about rather for rather longer yes yes absolutely it's uh, also interesting indeed all these uh, personalities and differences and uh, yeah and you mentioned um a life worth living can you talk a little bit about what does that what does that mean when we talk about what is life <laughs> worth living? <laughs> I know, I know. It, it, it's uh, <laughs> the simple answer is uh, we think we know what it means, but I, I can't define it. Um, 
it is it's a phrase that the farm animal welfare council took up and it in, involves um it involves more than well we say it we think it involves more than just freedom from the negative stresses of life it, it is the capacity to enjoy life and so it really is trying to offset the potential pleasures against the potential pains and i suppose that life worth living is one where the uh, the pleasures somewhat outweigh the pain but then at the moment i i have difficulty with it because i'm not actually sure what causes animals pleasures so, yes so it's it's a fluid concept in the sense also obviously very, yeah you talk very much about what you know what it is to them you know what they would what the animals themselves would favor yeah. Uh, and then, you know, what, so what makes a life worth living for uh, a species, perhaps in general, but also, you know, the individual differences for an individual, what would make their life worth living? And, I mean, is it worth living all the time? I mean, uh, um, you know, you can take <laughs> two of the species that whose lives we've most fouled up by our own intentions, uh, that are our, uh, two of our favorite species, the dog and the horse. Both of whom who who exhibit more behavioural abnormalities than almost any other animal, um, because they've been that their normal um, lives have been so distorted. Uh, and the dog, uh, you know, so many dogs are just manic depressives. You know, they're overwhelmed with joy when the owner comes back, or they're going to take for a walk or something. And then when they when they they're left on their own all day, they they bark all dogs in kennels. You pass dogs in kennels. Kennels as dog dogs barking in despair for probably non-stop all day for a, for a week or a fortnight while their owners away so um is that dog's life worth living i don't know does, does the short periods of ecstasy uh, offset the um long periods of um chronic anxiety um and you know, with a horse that's developing so-called stable vices dreadful phrase stereotypes and things of this nature um you know that is abnormal behavior and reflecting the fact that, that at that moment of time, that life is not worth living. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with, with the life is you. I don't think you can uh, end up with a net sum of is this life worth living or not? But it's very difficult to create a let add it all up as the five domains sort of does and say, well, well on balance, in my opinion, um, this this quality of life comes just above the line. So it's worth living. Um, I find that a very difficult concept to accept. Yes, and I'm glad you're pointing to language because I think language is so important. Like when we're talking about saying, saying things like vices, yeah. uh, like uh, rather than, you know, where what are the symptoms? Uh, what are we seeing? What is happening? And where are they, you know, originating from? And uh, why, why is this happening, right? And I think language can be so strong uh, and such a valuable tool in helping us think and also really act differently uh, for animals in what it is that we, uh, or how we think what they might be experiencing. So for example, in, in zoos, uh, we often talk about the night quarters um, where animals might be separated in for the night. We talk about them as bedrooms which kind of makes yeah, our yeah. brain think that they're going to sleep there uh, because that's what we are doing at night. But many of the animals that go into these night quarters, the bedrooms, they're not actually going to sleep there. 
Um, it depends on depends on the species, yes, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, and I think by you being very attentive to what words we use or how we describe things, it also will help us think uh, and be more clear about what do we actually mean. And again, going back to what is it that the animals are experiencing? Yeah. And what should we um, be attentive to? Well, 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 of course, the whole concept of speech, it's despite our efforts to prove otherwise is alien to animals. I mean, that the, the, one of the amazing thing about animal minds is the, the capacity of an animal to grasp a situation, a really quite complex situation uh, without the power of speech, uh, that, to form these clear mental images without the power of speech. So when an, an, an experimenter does, for example, a motivational analysis test, looking for strength of motivation to a particular action. So they set, a, set the animal complex problem and then the animal sorts it out uh, and deals with it appropriately. <clears throat> the scientist then writes a paper using all sorts of words to describe the processes that have gone on in that animal's mind. Of course, an animal hasn't used words at all to, to come to the same conclusion. So the concept of speech is, is, is not the way animals think. Uh, and so when we use these words like vice or whatever, um, or even words like pet, you know, it is entirely a human concept and it isn't it is entirely alien to the way an, the animal minds work. And uh, if we can get that into our heads, that's that's a start. Absolutely. And I think it's such a wonderful example also about, you know, how we in our endeavors to be very objective, because, you know, often um, in science, you know, it's it's frowned upon to do X, Y and Z. Um, and then this is, is something that we do. Um, and um, and and that seems to be well, very well accepted, uh, but without actually describing uh, how we got there or how we make all those um, ways of talking and writing actually relevant to a completely different process as how the animals are experiencing. And so that I think is also very interesting. So the uh, you talked about the five uh, freedoms and the domains and you just recently a few years ago published a paper on the five domains model to assess um, adverse impacts on in in horses and uh, yeah. maybe you can talk a little bit about that because you started to talk about dogs and horses well, well the, um it's, it's paul mcgreevy is the is the uh, um yes you the, the, the primary he, he's an ex-graduate student of mine so um, i know him pretty well uh, i know him very well uh, um it's his thing um again i guess what i'm really saying is i don't actually think the five domains problem helps a great deal because it's it comes up with this sort of overall score of quality of life. Uh, I come back to the original thing. We should um, we should look at the causation. I th rephrase that. It is a more use to the horse to look at the causation of specific problems. Now to take. Um, a very specific problem, which Paul McCreevy studied a great deal, starting in Bristol, subsequently in, in the Sydney. Um, uh, crib biting and wind sucking. This was always assumed to be a vice or an expression of boredom or whatever. Um, when we looked into it more carefully with Christine Nickel and co, um, it was clearly uh, most likely to be caused by indigestion from a diet, from a, a two application of two, an 
insufficient fiber in the diet um, to uh, cause normal digestion in the rather odd digestive tract of a horse that is a fiber digestion that has this tidy stomach up front. Um, and horses, unlike cattle, uh, only salivate when they're chewing or, or, or and chewing and swallowing. Cattle salivate all the time, and that stabilizes the pattern of fermentation in the rumen. Um, and uh, whereas a horse only will um, only salivate when it's things like chronically eating hay. And a horse is designed to eat slowly hay for about 14 hours a day. Uh, if, if it gets two rubber meals, at worst, it, it gets indigestion and at worst, well, not at worst, it'll get, it'll get stomach ulcers. Uh, and nearly all wheeling foals have su some degree of stomach ulcers, uh, which they can relieve by uh, salivating buffers, putting out sodium bicarbonate in, in, in the saliva and, and, and actually relieving the indigestion and or pain. So the onset of crib biting and wind, so-called wind sucking, which is taking allegedly taking air into the, in the stomach, it's actually just into the esophagus, is the horse actually stimulating salivation in order to relieve abdominal discomfort in the first instance. Subsequently, like all stereotypies, rephrase that, subsequently it may become a stereotypy whereby the action has lost any contact with the original cause. But originally it wasn't boredom. We di diagnosed it wasn't a stable vice. It wasn't boredom or just a bad habit. It was a genuine attempt to relieve discomfort. Uh, and once uh, that to me is a much, of Paul McCreevy's work, that is a much more valuable thing for the horse than to decide whether on balance its quality of life is above or below the sort of zero line. Yes, wonderful. Yes, I have sent an email to uh, Paul McGreevy uh, for a podcast because, of course, he has done so much work on horses, articles, books, and, and yep. lots of animal training. There's a Carrot and Sticks, which is a book that is used also a lot in zoos and aquariums, you right. know, to look at the use of animal training for in welfare purposes. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, so hopefully we'll uh, we'll hear a lot more about that. So well, he's, he, I understand he's just resigned his, but he's still got online. He's resigned his post at the University of Sydney after some major row with his boss, I think. But I, I haven't got the full story yet, but I, I had an email from him. He said he'll, he'll have to discuss it with me over a beer sometime. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, okay. <laughs> so we're coming almost uh, to the end of our podcast, but there's still so much uh, to talk about. But one of the things that... Um, I would like to hear more about is uh, the work that you are doing around the meat crisis. Uh, so we're kind of jumping around from topic to topic because you already have, you've done yep. so many different things, but could you talk? Well, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, a little bit about the meat. Crisis. Well, the meat, the, the meat and dairy crisis, they've got another a new uh, review coming out in some new journal, which Christine Nick was editing, but um, yeah, I mean, there is no doubt whatsoever that um, too many people are eating too much food of animal origin. Um, and it, it is, it, this is not a moral point, it's a fact of life, it is unsustainable. If the Chinese ate as much, uh, if the Chinese individuals ate as much beef and dairy produce as the Americans per, per head, uh, the entire reserves of the world would sort of run down in about four years. So it can't be done. So it, it has to stop. It ha rephrase that, it has to be reduced. Um, that doesn't mean to say we all have to go vegan, but the uh, old nutritional, the most of human nutrition can be summed up in, in about seven words, which is 
eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And uh, if we go towards that goal, um, it will mean that uh, we, we will have to reduce the dependence upon meat and dairy products. In the case of um, beef products, where we're ruining the environment by um, cutting down uh, vast quantities of jungle in order to support growing soya for feedlot beef, it, it, that is a real problem and it has to change. However, that is not to say we should stop eating beef altogether. I mean, in the southwest of England where I live, um, we see uh, beef cow cows with their calves out on the fields of Devon, um, high rolling fields, green grass for 10 months of the year, the, uh, calves staying with their mothers until their mothers are fed up with them. Uh, eventually being killed at about two and a half years of age. But up to that time, their quality of life is a, about as good uh, as any farm animal ever gets. I mean, they're having a lovely time. And, and you know, they're, they're being untroubled, that the, the environmental stresses are minimal and they're well adapted to them. And, um, you know, their lives are, are kind of short, but um, their quality of life is good. So to suddenly say all beef is wicked, this is the point. It, it's too much beef. Um, produced by unsustainable and, and in many ways and in some ways cruel systems with dairying again um, dairy products are fine up to, up to a point but um, the uh, extraordinary extraordinary production of cows that can produce uh, you know 60 to 80 liters of milk per day per cow which is grossly exceeding what could be called um, biologically normal it's an abuse. So these things we have to cut back and we have to use animals for what they're best suited to, because for thousands of years, literally until the 20th, about the second the advent of um, tractors and antibiotics, um, mixed farming uh, was entirely sustainable and, and highly efficient because the uh, the ruminants, uh, um, grazed animals which the owners didn't own, uh, on eating food which we couldn't digest, uh, and the pigs and poultry just went around the locale scavenging up the bits we dropped or threw away and, um, you know, discarded. So that was entirely uh, sustainable, and it had been sustainable for 10,000 years, but it, it didn't generate a lot of income, and it didn't satisfy the sort of capitalist demands for more and more money for more and more less. Um, they, they didn't satisfy, okay, this is almost a good way to finish, with the uh, concept of we must sustain continuous growth. Uh, dear David Attenborough said, one of his finest lines was, the only two um, sets of people who believe in the principle of continuous growth are economists and idiots. And that's quite a good way to finish, I think. It is a very good way to finish. Yes, and I think, you know, you, this is really an important point, and it's something that, that is also very dear uh, to my heart as a topic to talk about and to write about. Um, seven years ago, we, we wrote a paper uh, in critical animal studies, which was about eating animals at the zoo. And it was, of course, not about eating, you know, the wild animals at the zoo, but about the meat um, that is served in restaurants and in hot dog stands and so on, really looking at the welfare aspects of the animals that are served uh, when people go and visit these facilities. And then a follow-up uh, of our work, which we are um, 
working on now is uh, eating to save wildlife and that's been a presentation some years ago but that really is about these points that you talked about so if we're going to you know in zoos and aquariums one of of course the endeavors is to protect species to work with yep. organizations that are protecting animals uh, in situ that are protecting habitats and so how do you know the we talk about 700 million people in the world visiting zoos and aquariums that's an estimate so how do we then connect that to the food that is conserved that is served in all these facilities uh, and of which a lot of it is meat and also fish well uh, uh Mm. How do okay. Tie that message together. So it's, it's it's a very interesting topic to me. Well, not I won't deal specifically with restaurants and zoos, no. but one of the one of the major steps forward in in the practical application of animal welfare in UK in particular, and particularly in my part of the world, which is traditional farming, traditional mixed farming country, traditional it's grasslands areas really, um, is that. Uh, and we're a fairly affluent lot, it is marketing food on the basis of local provenance. The restaurants will say, um, you know, the beef this week came from a limousine heifer from J John Snell's farm at uh, Frampton Cotterill or something down the road. Uh, and and you, you can trace the you, you can trace the provenance and the food chain all along so that you can it's not just quality assurance that there are, there's genuine quality control you know that if you really want to go and see you can actually go and see that farm and know that animal was sort of killed in a, in a local abattoir uh with minimal stress uh, and had a very good life so the um the concept of local provenance uh which makes makes everything makes all foods of animal origin more expensive which they need to be because they're ludicrously cheap at the moment I mean, chicken is just crazily cheap. Um, milk, the price of milk to the farmers is sometimes less than the price of bottled water, fizzy water, Perrier water or whatever. So uh, the food from animals is far, far, far too cheap and far too plentiful. And so we, to a certain extent, we have to use price uh, as a way of cutting back on animal consumption from, of food from animals. The, point, the animal problem, eating food from animals is not inherently uh a sin the problem is that the poison is in the dose it's just too much of everything too much too intensive yes and and i think it's really you know um laudable that many facilities that that i've worked with or that i've visited like for example i visited bristol uh, zoo many years ago and they had uh, this kind of approach you know that all that they were really um, thinking about within a, a 30, 40 kilometer radius, all their food, you know, like yes. sourced and some zoos are moving to more plant-based and it's, it's like you say, it's kind of, and aquariums are looking at fisheries and, you know, so there's lots of ways of, of making that more practical. And at the same time, you know, trying to keep in mind that people will have different philosophies. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. You know, it's very slow uh, and things are getting a bit better amongst. Um, but we mustn't, we mustn't, the, we, the reasonably affluent middle classes, mustn't impose our mores on the whole world. We have to recognise that we have a moral duty, not just to the animals, but to the rest of the people. And so within a whole ethical matrix, a moral complex of our to define our duties, we must realize that we have a, 
we, the consumer, have a moral responsibility to the animals, to the producers, and to the consumers who may not be as well off as we are. And that we have to build into a very, very, very complex set of morals. Yes, absolutely. And this is so true for animal productions, but it's also very true for plant-based products, like the price of quinoa. Oh, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Staple food for many people in those areas have risen to extreme heights because now people wanting to have a plant-based diet or a vegan diet, like mm. that, they they want certain products, and that yeah. So it's so important to look at at that um, and how does it impact uh, other people? Well, well, yeah, yeah. And, and of course the environment, and that that's this is where it's yeah. very very big indeed. You know, um, plowing and uh, uh, growing crop of soya on soya on soya wrecks the soil yes. uh, and drags the carbon out of the soil and everything whereas extended grazing for example um, or particularly sort of agroforestry systems where you have ruminants grazing in a, in a, in a, in a mixed savanna or mixed gr um, grass and trees is just about as sustainable as it gets. Not very productive but it's very sustainable. Yes, and it drives back to your the point that you highlighted from Sir David Attenborough on production. Yeah. This whole, you know, when are we going to let go of this idea that it's all about just maximum? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So you have uh, really shared a lot of, um, you know, learnings and examples and and you talked about, I think one point that you just made was about being an optimist and having this positive attitude and, and recognizing that change is slow, but it's moving uh, forward, maybe not necessarily at the pace that we would like to, but uh, in this last few minutes, can you highlight maybe some of your key learnings and insights and also what are some, you already mentioned, you know, some of the, the work that we need to do in understanding other minds and in getting insights, like what are your ideas on priorities of welfare science and directions? Well, I'm not sure I can say anything uh, that I haven't said already in this regard. In regards to animal science, I think uh, it is the animal mind. I think we have a fairly good understanding of the the, the basic stressors of pain and, and um, hunger and that sort of stuff. So we, we need to deep, um, dig deeper into animal minds and that is that is in a sense is fundamental research so one can't actually say what its applications are and, until we get there um, but having said that as far as the animals themselves are concerned our main role uh, the, the main role of society is, is to of those who wish to, of the shakers and movers in society is to move public opinion to more to more humane attitudes to animals and a more responsible attitude to eating food from animals. Um, I, how, and I've given some suggestions, articles of how that may be. The role of the scientist in that regard, and this is very much my role, is not just to publish papers, but to ensure that these, that the movement in public opinion is, is consistent with the the, the movement in the way that humans treat animals and regard animals is consistent with the way that animals regard themselves. That is that is a very big role of science. But finally, I, I am an optimist. I think that, I, I said again, that I think it's genetic. I just happen to be an optimist. And, and in reality, <coughs> it is fair to say that my first sort of 25 years 
in the welfare science movement, we didn't seem to be getting very far. But in the last 10 years, we're moving forward at an accelerating pace that may or may not um, persist. Well, like all growth, it doesn't go forever. It's probably a sigmoid because it'll flatten out quite soon, I think. But um, yeah, I'm an optimist. Wonderful. And we always talk in the podcast about how we love stories, like stories with animals, some sort of lived experience or, you know, your involvement in, in like some changes made or policy. Do you have, in conclusion, a, a story for us that you would be happy to share? Um, I have a hundred crazy stories with animals. In fact, my wife last night, I, I did a podcast or, or a, a Zoom link with a guy from San Francisco last night about chicken welfare. And then our friendly Griselda, our friendly neighborhood chicken from next door, the farm next door, wandered over. We were having in this beautiful spring, we were having this lovely supper out on the, on, on the um, terrace. And, and uh, my wife has got a picture of me communicating with his hen, nose to nose, just over my dinner. Uh, that, that's the latest animal story I've got for you. I like that. That's a wonderful story to end on. You know, I'll, 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 I'll send you. A, I'll send you the photo she took to prove that I'm not. I'm telling you the, the truth. Yes. Yes. No. Absolutely. I was going to ask for that, but I didn't want to like go. Oh well, that's, yeah. that's a very personal story. But yeah, yeah. so that's absolutely wonderful. And uh, yeah, nose to nose uh, over your over your dinner, and that's a wonderful yeah. story. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, Professor John and I really look forward to um, the next podcast about your new book. Okay, well I'll keep I'll keep you posted. I'll tell you when it when it's come, when it when it comes out, which shouldn't be too long actually. I'm okay. now back on the on 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 film. Wonderful. So well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself so that you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And the animal welfare science platform is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice, where you can get education and tools you need to care for yourself and for your animals. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today if you wish to do that.